Love does no wrong to a neighbor. A college friend has recently written a book on the First Amendment, specifically dealing with the free exercise clause of the Constitution and the prohibition against the establishment of religion. He thought, since I was once a pastor, that I might be interested in what he had written, and so he sent me a copy of his book. And indeed, I have been interested in what he wrote. My friend is not a believer, and his book argues, in fact, that the First Amendment only became possible when our founding fathers moved beyond faith to a kind of enlightened skepticism. That enabled them to view all religion from a superior standpoint. Here, they thought, he argues, was an area beyond the government's competence that should remain always a private matter. I agree with some of what my friend has written, especially the notion that faith should never be coerced and that one of our country's greatest contributions to the understanding of both church and state is the notion that one ought not to regulate the other. Still, when I finished his book, there was something bothering me, something I was not able to put my finger on exactly. And part of the bother has to do with the fact that I was assigned this text in Romans for today and listening to what Paul says in the 13th chapter. Let me try to explain. My friend has argued that what has given us the right to the free exercise of our faith is the discovery in the 18th century of the integrity of the individual, the inviolability of a person's conscience. The Founding Fathers were, in his judgment, enlightened, and enlightened particularly in their use of reason. Political progress can be made, my friend has argued, only by leaving faith commitments behind. But I, I wonder about that. It's no secret that we live in a time of great political and social upheaval. Our language is plenty smart and at times even clever, but it is rarely kind and often simply abusive and dismissive of others. The divisions we face in our culture seem insurmountable, impossible to overcome even with our skillful use of reason. And so we gather ourselves into more congenial tribes and reinforce our own opinions. Love it would seem, has little to do with it. This 13th chapter of Romans is pervasively political. There's no other way to describe it. Paul begins by exhorting the Christians in Rome to subject themselves to the governing authorities, to honor and even respect them. This, of course, is not the only piece of political wisdom in the New Testament. 
if you want to read a different take on how Christians should regard the governing authorities, you can read Revelation 13. But here in Romans 13, Paul counsels respect and even obedience to higher authorities. He does so, however, not because he's an authoritarian or a lover of the state, but because he thinks the central fact of human existence has nothing to do with the state. Honoring Caesar does not mean worshiping Caesar. Moreover, opposing Caesar does not necessarily mean faithfulness to God. Caesar, Paul thinks, is just not that important. And in any case, is not as important as he, or sometimes we, think he is. The central fact with which both Caesar and the rest of us have to do is the fact of Jesus Christ. He is the quite unself-evident truth that makes you and me and our enemies and our friends persons, persons whose integrity is not to be violated. We do not belong to Caesar. As one of our own catechisms in the Presbyterian Church insists, we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That fact is what makes a person a person, and even more, what makes a person worth troubling over. And that fact, though whether others believe it or not, is what makes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness something to be valued. It's what makes the free exercise of anyone's faith or even the free exercise of no faith a thing to be respected and protected. Yes, I know I've banged on in this sermon thus far without even getting into the text, so let's look at actually what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love one another. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Not much of a political slogan, is it? And in truth, is there a more threadbare, meaningless, worn-out word in the English language than love? Counsels to love one another when tribes are yelling at each other, when buildings are burning, when victims are being crushed under the knee of authorities, would seem quite beside the point, like telling the sharks and the jets to get along, like inviting warring tribes to sing Kumbaya, like calling a riot-torn part of the city just a area that's experiencing the summer of love. Really? Is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what we believe as Christians 
that love is something nice but really ineffectual, something pious and good but ignorant of the hard realities of life, something, well, as sentimental as it is useless. If so, then the church, and especially its preachers, have much to answer for. Love your neighbor as yourself, Paul says, is what fulfills the law. But such love, I would suggest to you this morning, is more costly than any one of us is able to bear. One occasionally does see images or refractions of such love in our culture and in our world. But to love like that, really to love, takes more courage than most of us can summon up. A couple of months ago in June, I was reading a story in the newspaper about the demonstration at Tiananmen Square in 1989. You may remember that a photographer captured an unforgettable image of a single man standing in front of a row of tanks that were moving down the street to shut down the demonstration. A single man in front of a tank. That man, I suspect, loved his country, loved his neighbors, loved them enough to stand athwart history and say, stop. I don't know where he is today or what happened to him or even if he is still alive, probably not. But love, I suspect, begins to look something like that. Several years ago, I had the privilege of leading a group of students on a Reformed Heritage Tour through Europe. We began in France. In a little town south of Lyon, France, we stopped in a village whose French Reformed congregation sheltered over 3,000 Jewish children during World War II and saved them from the Holocaust. We went to the church. This is a Reformed church. The church was quite simple, completely without ornament. But over the entranceway into the church, in order to get into the church, there were three words that were etched in stone over the doorway that said, love one another. Love one another. That's hard. And at times, that's scary. And it's much more scary than voting or yelling or preaching. How then did anyone ever come to suggest that loving one another made any kind of sense in our kind of world? What does it mean to love one's neighbor? Will Campbell was a Baptist preacher. He's deceased now. But he grew up on a farm in Emmett County, Mississippi. 
After graduating from Yale Divinity School, he pastored a Baptist church, a small congregation in Louisiana. While he was in this town, he became invested in the civil rights movement. Soon he was called to be a campus minister, perhaps the campus minister, at the University of Mississippi at Oxford. While he was there, he helped James Meredith integrate that university. He was also the only white man at the organizational meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, headed by Dr. King. He marched with Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery. In his autobiography, he tells of being invited in the late 60s to address a group of students at the National Student Association National Meeting. The group had just watched a CBS documentary on the Ku Klux Klan and their involvement in the murder of three civil rights workers in Mississippi. As they watched this documentary, the group saw the Klan initiating new members, having them all line up in a row in military fashion and march. And the leader shouted, left face, and they all turned left, except for one scared and pathetic young man who turned right. The crowd of students watching the documentary laughed and jeered at that ignorant young man who did not know his left hand from his right. Campbell writes that those students considered themselves radical, but he concluded there was not a radical one in the bunch. For if they had been truly, truly radical, they would not have left, laughed at that pathetic young man. He was invited to speak to the group, Campbell was, and he got up in front of these students and said the following. This is his whole speech. My name is Will Campbell. I'm a Baptist preacher. I'm a native of Mississippi, and I am pro-Klansman. I'm pro-Klansman because I am pro-human being. That's my speech. If anyone has any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. Of course, a near riot broke out. Things were tossed. People scattered toward the exits. But a few remained behind, and they turned to him, and they asked how he could say he was pro-Klansman. Campbell replied, I never said I was pro-Klan, but I am pro that human being who is scared and frightened trying to live underneath those robes. He belongs to Jesus Christ, too. And to be radical, truly radical, is to risk loving just such a one. Hard to say, hard to hear. It's so much easier to howl with the wolves, to signal our virtues and to point out the obvious failings on the other side. It's hard 
to love your neighbor. In fact, we do almost anything to keep him or her from being called our neighbor. That way we think we're not obligated. And in fact, we can call him or her something else and we can come up with no shortage of names. So how did Campbell dare to say to those students such a thing? To insist that he was pro-human being, even pro-flawed, deeply warped, ignorant, scared, dangerous human being. I think it was because he heard somewhere, perhaps from the Apostle Paul or elsewhere, of a man hanging on a cross who said to his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That man was pro-human being as no other has ever been. The passion of his love has melted steel-hard hatreds. He was rejected and jeered at, dismissed, a fool for loving like that on a cross. But I'm here to tell you, he haunts our certainties and disturbs our dreams. He draws us closest to the strangest people, enemies that he tells us are our neighbors. His love is hard that way. He won't let us rest with the comforts of our certainties or tribal ideologies or our mushy notions of love. Oh no, this one has other plans for us. And he will take us to places we do not want to go. But that so often is the way it is in Scripture, isn't it? Just like Moses, just like Jonah, just like Paul, just like us. Amen.